morning, church family. This morning's scripture reading will be coming from Isaiah chapter 32, verses 12 through 20. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vines, and for the land of my people, a land overgrown with thorns and briars. Yes, mourn for all houses of merriment and for this city of revelry. The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted, citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever, the delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks, till the Spirit is poured on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert, his righteousness live in the fertile field, The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Though hell flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely, how blessed you will be sowing seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's good to be back with you after uh, being uh, on vacation for a week. And really thankful to Norris Elam and the great job that he did uh, last Sunday talking about what it means to be a father and uh, we're so blessed to have shepherds and Norris is is, uh, is just one of the the group that can can offer such wise counsel and and help those of us that are are trying to figure out you know how to live life and how to do it successfully in God's eyes. He's he's one of uh, one of our many shepherds that can that can instruct our minds and and we can look at his life and see that what he lives backs up what he says. And so really thankful that. Uh, that Norris was able to speak this last Sunday to the church. This morning we're going to be looking at Isaiah this morning and tonight, and we're going to begin with a word of prayer. There is an outline inside of the announcement sheet. If you're visiting with us, there is an outline that you can use as we go through this message this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the way that the rain has, has fallen upon the dry land that is South Texas, the place where we live. Our gratefulness for this, Father, is, is without words. For we, we know just how important that rain is to the, the land becoming fertile and flourishing the way that it was always intended to flourish. But more than anything else, Father, we're thankful for the way that Your Word, Your Spirit, Your presence, Your love, Your grace falls upon the barrenness of of human lives in such a way that it completely transforms it. That human beings become truly alive and understand what it means to to be at peace and to have joy and, and to know that there is no condemnation and to know, Father, that we are Yours and Yours forever. And for this, again, we do not have words. But there is such great thankfulness and gratitude in our life, Father, that we pray that you will increase our faith and 
uh, light of our desire to bring honor to your name and to show the, the, the watching eye around us that there is nothing more precious in, in this life than to be your children. Father, as we study Isaiah this morning, it's our prayer that you give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray that you bless us in this way. In Christ's name, amen. Tina, could you uh, turn me up just a little bit? I uh, taught the high school class and uh, this morning, and I think with the change in, in the weather, um, uh, feeling uh, a little strange right now. Uh, I want to I start with a question. When I say Isaiah, what is the first thing that pops to your mind? There is uh, uh, a lot of things that might pop in your mind. I think for most people, though, it's what we consider to be the three C's of Isaiah. The first C is the call of Isaiah, the famous passage in Isaiah chapter 6, where it's holy, 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 and here am I, send me. That, that, that great passage there at the very beginning of, of Isaiah, the call of Isaiah. Second C is the Christmas passages. Isaiah chapter 7, Emmanuel, God is with us. Isaiah chapter 9, the Prince of Peace, Mighty Counselor. Uh, those passages. And then the third C would be the communion passage, which is Isaiah chapter 53, which we hear a lot when we focus our minds on the sacrifice of Jesus and the cross of, of the Christ. And we read the words of Isaiah chapter 53, which are about his suffering servant. What is it that you think about? I took an informal poll this last week. The question was, and I asked several of you this question, why do people shy away from reading all of Isaiah? Why do they shy away from reading this entire book? And there were a lot of answers that were given. One was it's too long. 66 chapters. And it's true. It's one of the longest books in the entire Bible. Some said the language is too difficult to, to follow. And that can be true as well. I think that, uh, that there's probably some truth in this. Some of the scholars believe that Isaiah was written to be read out loud or to be read dramatically with different, part, different people reading the different parts. And that was one of the ways that it was to be presented to God's people. There may be some truth in that. Others said it's a little bit too negative. It's too pessimistic. And it's true. A lot of the problems that we have already looked at in the, the prophets are found also in Isaiah. And he talks at at great depth about the problem of idolatry and false worship and, and people that want to draw near to God with their lips but their hearts are far away, Isaiah chapter 29. But the bottom line is, is that Isaiah, in reality, is one of the most optimistic and positive books in the entire Bible. Others said, I don't like poetry. And there's not much that you can do with that except to, you know, to work through it. Others said, you know, and, and, and maybe there are a lot of you here this morning saying, you know, there's a lot of intimidating vocabulary. There are a lot of concepts that are a little bit strange. For instance, chapter 22, the Valley of Vision. Chapter 24, there's the reference to the city of chaos. In chapter 34, there is the reference in the, in the New American Standard, it's the night hag. In some of the other versions, it's the night monster. In chapter 35, it's the highway of holiness. There's all that debate in Isaiah chapter 14. Is that really a reference to the fall of Satan or one of the great nations? That passage that says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Well, it is a difficult book, and it is a big book. It's one of the longest in the entire Bible, and there's really no way that we can tackle in one sermon and do justice, let alone in a whole series, the writings of, of Isaiah. So I propose that we're going to do it in two different ways. First, this morning, we're going to look at chapters 1 through 36, 
And then tonight we're going to look at chapters 40 through 66. And if you'd like to divide the book up, maybe write a, a, a short uh, way to outline the book, verses 1 through 36, one section, verses 37, 38, 39 dealing with Hezekiah, a second section, and then chapters 40 through 66 that talk about exile in Babylon and the return from Babylon and God's future, chapters 40 through 66. Now, my task this morning and tonight is, is to show that there is great relevancy and great importance for Isaiah, even to 21st century disciples. And I want to challenge us as a church like I've done the last week or so, to just spend some time reading slowly through the book of Isaiah. And to show how important it is for us, I want, I want to illustrate it with a story. Uh, many of you know the name of Landon Saunders. Landon is a, is a great preacher, uh, does a radio ministry out of the Northeast that's nationwide. He tells the story of this ancient Middle Eastern, short, bearded, the curled-up shoes, a wise man that, uh, by the name of Nasrutin, who has a lot of friends and sees the world at a different angle from time to time. And one day, while Nazrudin is with some of his friends, he tells them of his grand plan, this grand scheme to launch a university. And his friends are excited about it. I mean, the world can use higher education, better educated people. And they say, what kind of classes, I mean, what kind of university is this going to be? And Nazrudin says, it's going to be one of the best. We're going to teach classes on philosophy and the math and the sciences. And we're going to teach history. And we're also going to teach people how to wash behind the neck. And they look at him and they say, you know, the science and the math and the history and the philosophy, we get all of that, but we don't quite understand why are you going to teach a course to teach people how to, to, to wash behind the neck? And Nazrutin says, it's because I want to teach people how to deal with the unseen. And that is one of the big messages of, of Isaiah. If you want to write it down, it's up on the screen. Isaiah addresses how to prioritize the invisible God in a predominantly visible world. Say that again. Isaiah addresses how to prioritize the invisible God in a predominantly visible world. Isaiah reminds us over and over again that there's more to living by faith in God's view than just following a weekly religious protocol of showing up at church at the right times on the right day or being baptized or even taking communion. Now, all of those things are important. But the level of faith that Isaiah and the rest of the Bible, for that matter, calls us to is much deeper and more profound than that. Faith reorients our life to trusting God, even when it does not appear to make sense, or that kind of faith drags us in that situation out of our comfort zones. And quite frankly, this is what has always set the people of real faith apart. What is it that the book of Hebrews says about that great hero of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, that man known as Moses? Chapter 11, verse 24 and verse 27, By faith Moses persevered because he saw him who is what? Invisible. By faith Moses persevered with all of the stuff that he had to go through and deal with and all of the pushback and the rejection and the fight and all of that that he had to put up with, he was able to persevere because he saw him who is invisible. Paul addresses uh, on several occasions, how do you know that you're living by faith? Or how do, you, how do you know that a person is of faith in light of the trouble and the problems that they're going through on a daily basis? Paul says it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is what? Unseen. That which is invisible. And so how do you do that? Well, Isaiah helps us with that. And to get our minds around these first 36 chapters, well, one little foray into chapter uh, 41, 
we're going to look at three different ways that, uh, or three different uh, uh, places in the Bible where we find in Isaiah an event, we find some principles, and we find an application. Now, so how do you deal with the unseen? That, let's think about this one event in, in Isaiah that begins in chapter 6. It's Isaiah chapter 6. It's the year that King Isaiah has died. That would put it about 742, 741 B.C. right in there. And Isaiah is in the temple and he's wondering what's going to happen to Israel. Isaiah has been a pretty good king. And if, if anything follows along the trajectory of history, there is the possibility that there's going to be a bad king that's going to follow Isaiah. And so Isaiah is thinking about Isaiah. He is in that temple and he's focused on the earthly kingdom. He's thinking about the visible earthly king Isaiah and his earthly physical visible leadership. And while he's thinking about all of that and focused on all of that, all of a sudden Isaiah sees, chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And the text goes on to talk about this great scene that Isaiah sees where he sees the Lord in all of this majestic holiness. And the seraphim are above Him, and they call out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His what? Glory. And the curious thing, as, as you think about this text, is that Isaiah is not struck so much by God's power versus how weak Isaiah is, although I'm sure there's a lot of that to it. Isaiah sees an aspect of the completeness of God, that is, God's inner distinctiveness, that is His holiness. Isaiah is struck by God's holiness. He's struck by what Walter Eichrode calls God's unapproachable otherness. That's why over and over in Isaiah, one of the favorite ways that, God, that Isaiah refers to God is the Holy One of Israel. About 29 or 30 times in Isaiah, he refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. This is one of his favorite ways to refer to God. Isaiah, in, in chapter 6, seeing this Holy One of Israel, is overcome. And he senses his own sinfulness because he has come into God's unapproachable otherness. His perfection, his sinlessness, his power, his might, his love, his grace, his judgment, his mercy, all of that all of that strength, all of that purpose, all of that comes to bear on Isaiah. And Isaiah sees the unseen. And it changes him. And all of chapter 6 <clears throat> is a build-up to chapter 7. Because in chapter 7, verse 1, we read these words, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Razan of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now, at this time in Jerusalem, Ahaz is king, and he's in a really tough spot. He's in a tight place. There are two kings, one from Israel, one from Syria, Pekah and Razan, who have come up to fight and really to destroy Jerusalem because they're pretty upset with Ahaz and the fact that Judah will not join their anti-Assyrian league. They have been taxed and tributed to death and they want to throw those shackles of, of taxation and, and the, the, the power of Assyria off of them. They want Judah and Jerusalem to join them. Ahaz will not do it and they're upset. They want to destroy South Judah. And South Judah, quite frankly, is fearful and Ahaz is wondering, you know, what's my next move? I've got these two kings, these two nations that have come at me. What's my next move? And Isaiah is sent by God to tell Ahaz, he says, he says, take care. Be calm. Have no fear. 
Do not be faint-hearted. God's going to take care of it. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that one of the first things that comes out of God's mouth through Isaiah is to tell King Ahaz, relax just a moment. Relax. Take care. Don't be afraid. Uh, I, I don't know what it is about middle school, but it, it seems as if in every middle school in every age, there is a period of time when there's at least one kid who is the most hated or most uh, reviled kid in that school. And the 1970s were no different in the, in the middle school, the junior high that I went to. There was, uh, there was a kid, I won't, I won't name him, but uh, there was a kid that uh, was sort of a rascal and was, uh, made a nuisance of himself. And uh, everybody just did not, I don't know if the kid had an entire friend during, during middle school because he just, in a lot of ways, made himself so obnoxious to everybody. And one day he made the mistake of, the, of saying something to a girl. The girl said something back to him and he slapped the girl. And the girl's boyfriend decided that he had had enough of this kid and that after school he was going to have a fight with him. And the word kind of spread so that after school, and, and this kid found out about it, he is running home and there's about, kid you not, there's about 100 to 150 kids from that middle school that are chasing him home. And I happen to be across the street at a friend's house and I see all of this taking place. And, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, this, I, what would I do? Now, if, if today, I mean, a SWAT team would be showing up to take and ambulances and fireplaces. But back in the 1970s, what happened? The mom called the dad. And this kid runs into the house just in the nick of time. And these kids are standing out there in the front yard. And they're saying, come on out and fight and you chicken, all that kind of stuff. And the next thing you know, here comes his car spinning around the corner. And it's the old man. And he comes, he comes driving up. And all the kids scatter except a couple of the kids that were so angry with this kid they wanted to fight him. And, and, and he finds out what's going on. He, goes, he doesn't go into the house, but he goes up to the door. And he says, he says come out, and says his son's name. And that kid comes out. And he says, uh, and I'm not saying this is a right or wrong way to, to handle it. The way that we handle it today would be different than we did 30, 40 years ago. But he says, you guys are going to fight, but it's going to be fair. And I'm going to make sure that it is fair. And this kid was ready to fight at that point, And nothing ever happened. And, and I, I thought first how terrible it was to see this, this happen to this kid. I mean, he'll, he'll never be the same because of the way that this, this crowd turned against him. But the second thing that I remembered was he came out of that house because his father told him he could. And he was able to stand up to overwhelming odds because of the courage that he had knowing that his father was at his side. That's what God is, is trying to say through Isaiah to Ahaz. Be calm. Take care. Do not be faint-hearted. In verse 7 he says, It will not take place. It will not happen. And Isaiah gives Ahaz a chance to see the unseen by telling him, Ask the Lord, verse 11, Your God for a sign, whether in the deepest of the depths or the highest of the heights, He will show you His power and His presence with you It's a sign that is designed to show you his strength in order to give you courage. And Ahaz says something that sounds so pious. He says, you know, he doesn't want to put the Lord to the test, which is just a euphemism for saying he's already made up his mind on what he's going to do, which is not to trust the Lord. And Isaiah says that God will give him one anyway. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and call him what? Emmanuel. God is with us. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. 
But Ahaz will not do it, even though we're talking about a short period of time. But instead, he sends some money to Tiglath-Pileser III, who is the king of the empire of Assyria, to come and to take care of North Israel and Syria, which is what Tiglath-Pileser III does. And at the same time that he's wiping out uh, the, the armies of North Israel and of, of, of Syria, he enslaves Judah through tribute collection. Now, a minor note here is that the answer that you come up with to any problem that is not God will always enslave you. The answer that is not God to any problem that you come up with will always enslave you. So, what, I mean, how does this happen? That there is the sign of God's presence and yet Ahaz chooses different. Well, that leads us to some principles. As you know, Judah is just troubled by idols in the land. In Isaiah chapter 41, the metal worker encourages the goldsmith, the one who smooths with the hammer, spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so that it will not topple. In Isaiah chapter 44, just three chapters later, there's even a greater indictment where that chapter ends on the foolishness of idols by saying, I have in my hand a lie. Now what is an idol? An idol is nothing more than a compilation of all of the good attributes that you think your God ought to have. And in Isaiah chapter 41, that's what's happening. The, the, uh, the, the metal worker and the goldsmith and the guy that strikes the anvil, the smithy and the guy that does the welding, they all look at this idol and says it's good. But guess what? They've got to have another guy to get that idol and to put it on a piece of wood and to nail it down so that it doesn't topple over when the wind blows. The point being that if the wind is able to knock down your idol, then the wind's going to be able to knock you down. And what you need is a God who is unassailable and who does not fall into the fetal position. That's the folly of idolatry. And so one of the principles that Isaiah is helping us to see here is that profound faith does not flourish in a divided heart. Now this is the age-old problem of adultery, uh, excuse me, idolatry, and we've talked about it before. The life of faith and the presence of idols does not work. It is incompatible. Idolatry in the Old Testament is often referred to as adultery. Why? Because the marital resources that are dedicated in covenant to one person exclusively, mutually, are being siphoned off to another. That is, the passion and the patience and the sacrifice, the love, the respect, the trust, all of that stuff, the honoring, all of that is being siphoned off to another person. And that's why Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that when it comes to God and money, you can't serve both. Why? It's because you really don't trust God to take care of you if you think it's the money that's really doing it. That's why you can find people saying that they have faith in God and that they're people of faith, but they actually spend more time, more energy, more talent making money than pursuing the kingdom of God in their life and worshiping the God of the heavens. And that's the kind of huge problem exists in Judah. And where there is a lack of faith, you're always going to find culture unraveling. And in Judah, the religious life, saying that we are God's people, that's being contradicted by the way that they're living their life in oppression and failure to care for the poor and the hungry and the worship of idols. And it completely made their relationship with God a joke and hypocritical. God will say to them in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate them with all my being. 
They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Faith, profound faith, does not flourish in a divided heart. And then the second principle, faith knows its history. Faith knows its history. My Old Testament professor in college, John Willis, used to say that what God has done in the past, God can and will do. He's capable of doing in the future. And so you have Isaiah chapter 31 and verse 1. You have Isaiah saying, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Tight spot. We'll get the army of Egypt to help us. Who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Now, a week ago, tonight, something kind of special happened in San Antonio. Remember what that was? Yeah, the championship, NBA championship has returned to its rightful home, San Antonio, Texas. Now, I, you know, we try not to use a whole lot of Spurs illustrations, sports illustrations, but you, you'll concede me this one. Uh, they win the championship, probably could have been a sweep had they made some uh, free throws in the second game. But, uh, I mean, they completely dismantled and throttled Miami, right? And, or Do you agree with that? And so what would you think... If someone says today, a week later, you know, I still think the Miami Heat are the better team. After all you've seen, yeah, I think they're the better team. I, you know, LeBron and you know Chalmers and and and, and Dwayne Wade and Bosh and you know all of those guys, uh, Ray Ray, uh, they're just they're just so great. I still think that the Miami Heat are the better team, and that's where I'm betting my life. What would you think after all that you have seen? After all you have experienced, after what you were able to touch, you would say foolishness. Now, this is the problem of choosing Egypt for protection rather than the God who destroyed that Egypt. The Exodus was part of, uh, just part and parcel of the Israelite history. What God did to release them from their enslavement, to bring them that Exodus out of Egypt at, 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 at what great power that was brought to bear on Pharaoh and all of the land of Egypt. Why in the world do you go to Egypt for your protection and not look to me? What does God have to do for people to trust Him and to give Him a vote of confidence? Well, that brings us to the applications. If you go to that mental section, 36, 37, or 37, 38, 39, you, you find a different king, Hezekiah. And the Assyrians have shown up again, and they're, they're ready to, to just destroy Jerusalem. And they're surrounded, and, and the Rab Shekeh has, has come forward, and he's shouting taunts and disdain at, at the people of Israel, inside of the people of South Judah, inside of that walled city of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah hears it, and all the advisors hear it, and all the people on the wall hear it. And, and they're, they're speaking to them. The Assyrians are speaking uh, the, the, lang- the Jewish language, Hebrew, to them so that everybody can understand it. And it's, it's terrible words. And they're standing on top of the wall and they say, the, the advisors to the king say, hey, don't, don't speak to us in, 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 in the language of the Judeans. Speak to us in Aramaic because we understand that. We don't want anybody else to hear it. And the Rab Shakeh says, no, why should... Should the truth of Assyria's power be kept from all of the people inside of Jerusalem? And they begin to speak and speak and speak and to disdain and to throw defiance at, at Israel and, and at God. 
And Hezekiah does a strange thing at this point. They're surrounded. He takes the words of the, 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 the Rabshakeh and he goes into the temple of God and he lays prostrate and he lays that letter down, the words of God. And he begins to pray for deliverance. It doesn't look likely they're going to be able to do it on their own. They are surrounded. And the Assyrians know how to fight. And the word of God comes to Isaiah, the son of Amoz. It says, you do not need to fear. It's going to be taken care of. And the next time they wake up, they look at, and 185,000 Assyrians have been killed by God. Not a single arrow has been shot by Assyria over the wall of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has had to do nothing but trust in God. It's not the most complex concept for, for disciples of Jesus to understand, but it's one of the hardest to apply. And that is, in every circumstance, the answer is to trust God. The answer is to trust the Word of God. It's something that we learn for the rest of our life. It's to trust, in all circumstances, the promises and the presence of God. Earlier, Ahaz is floundering in his faith. Isaiah said to him, you know, Emmanuel is going to be born and you don't have to really worry about this thing. There's this young boy that's going to be born to a young woman and this young woman's going to name him Emmanuel. It means God is with us. And the day comes a short time later when this boy was able to discern the right and the wrong and to know how to choose the, the difference between the two. And while in a short period of time all of this is happening, this Ahaz, this son of David, this king of Judah, chooses wrongly, does not trust God, blackballs God, does not give God a vote of confidence, and chooses wrongly and turns to Assyria for help. And, and Judah continues to travel toward its own destruction. You know, the birth of this boy, which could have done so much for South Judah, does nothing for the people of God. But centuries later, there's another spokesman for God, this time an angel and not a prophet, who appears to a man named Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew gives this statement, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Which prophet? Isaiah that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him what? Emmanuel. And this Emmanuel will not grow up with a divided heart. Once while he is facing Satan, he is facing the evil one, face to face, eyeball to eyeball. This Satan says to him, you can get everything. The glory, the power, the worship, you can get everything. I'll give it to you if you'll only worship me. And this Emmanuel does not have a divided heart and quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. You shall worship the Lord your God and your God alone. And this one also knew his history. The history of faith. He's hanging up there on the cross and the people are mocking him and saying all manner of, of, of disdainful, disrespectful, taunting, mocking kinds of things to him. 
And at one point as they're passing by and wagging their heads at him and, and making fun of him and ridiculing him, they say, you know, he was going to save the entire world if he comes down off of this cross and can save himself. We'll believe in Him. And then they quote Psalm 22 and verse 8, which says, Trust in the Lord. The Lord will rescue Him. And it's this Emmanuel who knows the history of faith in God and who says, Into your hands I commit my spirit to God. You know, trusting God and being a person of faith is not always the easiest thing to do. Sometimes it's the most difficult. In fact, I would say the most difficult thing that I have in my life, more difficult than trying to be the husband that Ellen deserves or the dad that, that, uh, that my two children deserve or to even to be the preacher that this church deserves, is, is to be the kind of person that's living a life that is worthy of the grace that I have received through Christ in, uh, through God in Christ and to trust that God at all times, with all things. And that's the challenge for us this morning. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe you haven't been trusting God very long, uh, very well uh, with some things that are going on in your life, painful things or dark things or things that you're having a hard time discerning. And all you keep coming up with is, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. And you don't find your thoughts centered on God. And maybe you need the, the encouragement and, and the power of your brother's and sister's prayer to help you trust God and to be confident in His presence. In His presence. Or it may be that you've never ultimately trusted God by giving your life to Him completely, lock, stock, and barrel, in such a way that you're throwing your entire future, your entire future in His hands by changing the way that you live and confessing that it's not going to be yourself that is Lord and Master of your life, but it's the Christ who's going to be the Master of your life. And to submit yourself in baptism to having your sins washed away and committing your life to the, to the path of a disciple. And God's Spirit coming inside of you to help you along the way. You've never, ever done that. Let me tell you, to continue trusting anything else but God to be your Lord will enslave you and lead you to destruction in your life and in the life to come. Some of our